Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello. Thank you for listening to us today. You know, if this is not the first time you've listened to the show and you're back because you like it, well, do us another favor and give us a rating or a like or a star or whatever your podcast app allows you to do to, to give us a favorable rating. We'd really appreciate it. And if you have the time, write a review. That's always helpful, too. This is episode number 132 of The Next Track. You know, whenever we have problems with understanding the music industry, whenever we, we really need to get to the root of a question and get the straight dope about the recording industry, about music sales, we call upon our friend Andy Doe to, to drop in and, and straighten us out. Andy, welcome once again. It is great to be back on the show. Thank you very much for having me. We spotted an interesting article in Rolling Stone last week, and I wrote Andy an email, and I asked if he would be interested to be on the show to talk about it. He replied, Every word of this article is shite, and I will happily tell you how. Doug and I had a conference before the recording, and we determined that we can say shite on the show. It's not one of the seven words that the FCC doesn't like. We could probably also say bollocks. So, Andy, you can use those two words if you wish to describe this article. Oh, good. The article is titled, uh, The Album is in Deep Trouble and the Music Business Probably Can't Save It by someone named... Bollocks. <laughs> by someone named Tim Ingham. The subtitle is, Sales are plummeting and the Bollocks. music industry is returning to the era of track-led consumption. Is the LP doomed? No, this is bollocks. You've got 25 minutes, so you can't just write it off with just saying, no, this is bollocks. Okay, okay, well, it's all so shite. But here's, here's okay, first thing, in, in fairness to the author, generally, as, as you know, Kirk, because you write for a living, when you write an article like this, you usually don't get to choose what the headline's going to be. True. Which is, which is tough, right? When you're, when you're writing about particularly complex industry issues, the person who's done all of the research doesn't get to summarise the article in, in a few words, which is the thing that's going to get seen by many, many more people than the article. And it's going to be seen even by those people who read the article all the way to the end. And now that we have the internet and we get we get stats on this, we know that that's a vanishingly small proportion of the people who read it. It's a vanishingly small proportion of the people who will see the headline. This is a problem and it's hugely misleading. But it's not necessarily the author's responsibility that this is how the article is summarised. Nonetheless, the central proposition... Nonetheless, he starts the article saying, make no mistake, the album is fighting for its life. Yeah. And you can see that because you've actually printed it out on paper. So you could write down and underline every word that is shite or bollocks. There are many, many pages, yeah. Yeah, many pages of underlined shite. So, okay, so <laughs> with the disclaimer that in all fairness to the author, he may not have written the headline that is shite. He did write the article, which is bollocks. <laughs> and so maybe we should start at the beginning with the proposition that the album is fighting for its life. Now, regular regular listeners will uh, will recall that I spent many years working on the iTunes Music Store. And regular listeners will recall this because, well, let's face it, if you'd spent many years working on the iTunes Music Store, then you'd tell people about it too, because nothing else you'd done before or since would be as cool as that if you otherwise ran classical record companies. So I recall during this period reading many times uh, articles about how the... Uh, the iTunes Music Store was 
was killing the album. Uh, downloads were killing the album. And they have been killing the album since, uh, well, certainly for, for well over a decade. And it is a little shocking that uh, that there's any any album left to be killed by streaming. Well, I'm thinking of it as kind of like Zeno's Paradox. You know, you go a certain amount of time and, and half you get halfway there and then you get halfway again, then you get halfway again, but you never actually get to the end. You just keep going half of the remaining distance each time. Absolutely. And so all the time somebody's making at least half an album a year, all the time, then the album has not been completely killed. This is daft. I mean, we've been we've been killing the album for for about two decades now, and maybe maybe there is some potential to kill it further. But let's rewind a little bit. Um, not 2008, but 1908, when people are first trying to record music that is too long to fit on a, a 10-inch 78 RPM shellac gramophone record. And what they what they do in this in this ecosystem in which the entire recorded music industry is singles, what they do is they take a bunch of these and they stick them together in a book and they call it an album. And this is this is where the album came from when you wanted to put more tracks in than you could more than two tracks, more than two sides of a record, you'd sell them together. Right? This is this is the source of the album. I just want to point out that our very first episode of the Next Track podcast was about songs to albums to songs, where we talked about the original way that songs were released individually, and then they became albums, and then they became LPs, and now songs have again become popular. So this is one of those, was it Nietzsche who wrote about the eternal return of history or whatever? This is a rare podcast where I can mention Zeno's Paradox and Nietzsche, and I'll probably go on at some point to mention Samuel Beckett and Within like Henry three James. minutes. Yes, indeed. It's just like three dudes with a podcast on the internet. We're, we're ticking the boxes here. Um, everybody, uh, tidy your bedroom. There we go. I'm a leading public intellectual. So we, we uh, the, the album was invented as a way of bundling songs together when they made sense. But what happened then? And, you know, if you want to stick a load of 78s together, it's kind of scalable. The more 78s you stick in the album, the more expensive the album is to to produce and ship. But then the LP comes along in the in the 50s, and there you have a kind of new paradigm where it costs basically the same amount to press your 12-inch disc, no matter how much music you put on it. And then at that point, there's a sort of a, a set length. And then the CD comes along, and again, that's a set length, and it's a, it's a different length. And, and neither of these lengths are in any way sacred. They are a bunch of of practical production constraints and economic constraints. Well, they're an artifact of the technology, that the technology has limits because it's physical. That's absolutely right. The, uh, the technology has limits because it's, it's physical, and of course you can put as much music as you want on a CD, but it costs the same amount to make the CD no matter how much music you put on it, so you may as well fill it up because that increases the perceived value and and then the fixed cost relative to the price that you're able to charge for it is lower. And so that's why the that album ended up the length that the album is. And when the iTunes store came along and was able to sell things as individual songs, what happened was that people would be more inclined to buy just the songs off the album and not the whole album, but still the process of releasing 
albums kind of made sense because the the promotional infrastructure remained the same. You put together a bundle of songs, you try and incentivize people to buy the whole thing. Still, you release a single, single, single in the run up to the release of the album, and you've got this big thing to promote, and you tour it. Right? That's that's what an album is. It it exists in this whole world of of manufacturing constraints and of of promotional behavior. There have always been the singles there it's not like tracks and singles are making some kind of resurgence in radio we were always looking for the next single the album didn't mean anything it's just what's the next single we don't care the music department the music companies can worry about whether they sell albums or not but we were concerned about what is the single and on any album you know there's one two three maybe four singles that the companies have said this is what we have to put on the album in order to get people to hear it in order to popularize it in order to sell the album and it's just be we were trained just to like the singles, not the the B sides, not the not the uninteresting songs. At least a majority of listeners. That's right. And once the CD single had kind of gone away because of the aforementioned economic constraints, uh, the only people who received the only people who consumed CD singles at all were radio DJs who got sent them because because the labels wanted them to play the singles. None of this is really getting to the the core of why this article is bollocks it's merely pointing out the uh, that there's nothing particularly sacred or important or wonderful about the album and if the album if an album is great then people will still download it off the download stores as they have been doing for about two decades but also people can stream it if if that's what they want to do but that isn't really what is utter utter bollocks about this article, right? If you're, if you're writing, you're trying to write an article that gives an accurate impression of how the music industry is doing, and you open with the paragraph, sales of music's most beloved format are in, and you know, maybe not music's most beloved format if they're in free fall, right? I mean, in what way is it the most beloved format? Yeah, if, no if they were so about- beloved, people would not. Yeah. But anyway, I digress into explaining why that's bollocks. Uh, sales of music's most <laughs> beloved format, bollocks, are in free fall in the United States this year. According to figures published by the RAAA, Recording Industry Association of America, the value of total stateside album sales in the first half of 2018 across download, CD and vinyl plummeted by 25.8% when compared to the first half of 2017. Oh, no! This does betray a rather perverse interpretation of the figures. If what you wanted to do was give people an idea of how the record industry's doing, you might have considered the headline figure that there was actually a 10% total increase in revenue for recorded music sales over the same period. So you've got a choice, right? You can say, oh, great, record companies are making 10% more. People are paying 10% more for music which means that there is our, our sector is in growth right this is this is all good and and in growth after a period when it was in negative territory for many years yeah like like sinking this is this is what they call a turnaround yeah yeah 20 years and now we're sort of in a halfway through maybe the third third consecutive year of growth right that is the sensible thing that somebody takes away from from the figures published by the RAAA the the media report but no, they've hunted around through the figures and they've found something that's going down and it's going down dramatically, which is the sale of albums 
on download CD and vinyl. And that's gone down by 25.8%, which is a precipitous decline. There's, there's no doubt about that. But let's think about what's happening here, that anyone who was going to switch from CD to downloads has done that. They have had their opportunity to do that. Any undermining of CD sales that was going to occur because of, because of downloads has occurred. What's happening now, the, the huge growth in streaming, which is coming in part at the expense of downloads, but more at the expense of CD sales, is taking those people who didn't want to download, weren't really going to get into downloading, those people now are getting into, into streaming. And on streaming, there are not the same incentives. You don't get a discount if you get the album instead of all of the tracks. You, you've got no incentive to take a punt on anything. And so, so a lot of people who would have bought a full album are now streaming the thing instead. Let's, let's just clear something up here. When you say take a punt, you're using the British meaning, which means sort of place a bet on something, whereas the American meaning is to kick a football on fourth down, down to the other end of the field. Yeah, just to be clear, I do not mean that consumers uh, may have been tempted to kick a download a long distance. I mean, they would have been tempted to take the risk on purchasing the entire album at a lower price rather than buying the singles and then checking out their tracks individually. Exactly. So basically, what, what has happened is that you generally have certain sectors of consumers, the, the kind that are wedded to doing things a certain way, the kind that are willing to be flexible and change the way they do it, and the ones in the middle that could go either way. And it kind of looks to me like, well, the, the ones on the left, they're still there, the ones on the right are still there, and the ones in the middle, they're moving a bit to the right towards streaming. Yeah, and, and that's fine. That's fine. And, and we know that it's fine from the perspective of people who make records because people who make records are getting paid more. There's a huge increase in streaming revenue, slight decrease in in uh, download revenue, there's a decrease in uh, physical revenue, which is a big decrease in CD sales and a small increase in vinyl purchases, which which add up to more money being paid for music and more music being listened to. So if if we can put this in another context... Imagine that this is, let's say, 1987, and the article opens, make no mistake, the cassette is fighting for its life. Um, yeah, yeah, but... The, because the, cassette sales were going down, they were being supplanted by CD sales. There was a new way of money coming into the music industry. But that's a physical sale. When you talk about the album, we're talking about a, con a concept of a bunch of pieces of music put together on one item, and... You know, everybody wants to make, uh, uh, my band just got a record. We're going to make an album. You know, no one wants to just make singles. They want to put out an album because that is more prestigious. And that's, that gives you the room that you want to be artistic in. You know, that gives you, that's a nice size for, for demonstrating your songwriting ability or whatever. So I think to say the cassette is just a medium. Except in most cases, the songwriting ability rarely stretches for more than about eight minutes. And the rest of the album is usually, how would one call it, substandard? Right. And one of the wonderful things about streaming, uh, and, and indeed uh, track downloads, but streaming even more so, because streaming 
rewards people listening to music, not people thinking it would be a good idea to purchase a people piece of music, or people thinking that they may at some point in the future wish to listen to a piece of music. Uh, one of the great things about streaming is that it encourages, it creates incentives for people to produce music that people will actually want to listen to, and not just kind of contractual obligation tracks or things that things that will fill out an album in order to justify a higher purchase price. But let's let's read on. Because I believe there's a great deal more bollocks as we go further down the article. Yeah, yeah, I have further shite for you. Um, if the percentage decline holds for the full year, and there's every indication it will, annual US album sales in the US will end up at half the size of what they were as recently as 2015. Well, that is true. Um, but also, streaming tripled in size over this time and you know next next paragraph um revenues generated by the cd album in the usa was slashed nearly in half down 41.5 percent to 246 million dollars right 246 million dollars seems like a lot of money if you see it on your credit card bill but streaming over the same period was 3.4 billion dollars right more than three times sorry more than more than 10 times the size and why anybody would choose to focus on the album as a format when that's a, a tiny minority of what's going on and is is more a concept than a physical format is is a little hard to understand unless their intention was to produce a shock horror headline without actually providing any useful clarity or context around what was what was going on. So th this is at best totally inept, and and at worst fake news. You are fake news. Clickbait, which led to fake news. Clickbait. Yeah, yeah. At, at best, at best incompetent. At worst, intentionally misleading. I I just want to. I I know you've got a lot of shite in your list here, but I just want to jump to something that seems to me a bit skewed. We've talked in the past about how certain genres have embraced streaming more than others and this person here as his example uses hip-hop for streams versus album sales interesting choice which is at one extreme end of the curve of what gets streamed as singles as opposed to being sold as albums that's right and it is interesting to note that hip-hop underperformed on download services and so what you're seeing in a, in a massive shift in consumption in hip-hop, very, very rapid adoption on streaming, is, is a kind of market correction. It's, um, and it's not representative of what has happened in the rest of the music industry. And I'm not saying it's not important. It, it is important. A lot of people make a good living from hip-hop. It is the means by which a great number of people uh, express themselves and find an emotional vocabulary within it. But... It is not the typical example of the music industry. Yeah, it, it's not. It's not maybe the the typical typical example, and it does represent a particular extreme here because it is a genre of music which people don't just buy, but they also listen to, and unfettered by uh, middle aged white boy collectors. Streaming statistics do provide a very valuable insight into just how much people actually do listen to hip hop, which is not surprising. I mean, you've got you've got huge density of lyrical content there. You have to do it a lot of times just to understand what's going on. And if you if you're going to memorize the lyrics to a Journey song, you may have to listen to that song 
twice. Whereas if you're going to do the same thing with the better end of hip hop, you're going to have to pay attention. Another interesting tidbit I found is Drake's Scorpion, which is the biggest album in the US market this year, has 25 tracks. Now, I remember when an album had 10 or 12 tracks, but this is part of the streaming economy, isn't it? Come on, Kirk, Kirk, Kirk. Don't pretend to be younger than you are. You remember when an album had eight tracks on it. Well, in, in our previous episode, we were talking about Dylan's Blood on the Tracks. That had 10 songs. And for me, that's, you know, 10... ten how, how far into the episode did we manage to get before you mentioned Dylan? <laughs> but I would say the average CD had 10 tracks when I used to buy CDs. Non Non-classical. So, so this has 25 tracks because that way anyone who plays the whole record is earning the artist twice as much money because streaming is paid by track, not by minute. That's right. So you need to make your tracks, you want lots of tracks. You don't necessarily want them to be long tracks. And that is one of the ways in which, in which the incentives created by streaming are different to the incentives created by um, downloading or CD sales. Also, it is worth considering that this may have been a purely artistic decision which on physical CD would simply be impossible. Like the Ramones, their first album, I think none of the songs were more than two minutes and 30 seconds, and that was an artistic decision. It had nothing to do with the length of time available on an LP. And they certainly didn't anticipate getting any radio play by having a bunch of singles. They weren't expecting to get their songs played on jukeboxes around the country. And they certainly weren't planning on it being streamed either. No. Yeah, but, I mean, you think about jukeboxes, they also generate a fixed amount of revenue, not for the artists, but they generate a fixed amount yep. of revenue. yep. That's true, uh, by song. By song, which means that if songs were commissioned by jukebox companies, uh, they too would want them to be very short and super catchy. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. What if, what if we had entered a parallel universe where the jukebox industry was the one determining the sorts of uh, format and... Uh, and length of, of things. That's a very interesting thought that I'll be thinking about later. So streaming is the new jukebox. Well, it kind of is. Kind of is. Well, I, mean, I kind of think of streaming as like radio because you turn it on and you find a bunch of things that you like and yeah. you say, I'll just leave it there and I'll just play those kinds of playlists. Whereas a jukebox was a shared experience. You'd, right. someone in the bar would put on their favorite Marshall Tucker song and you would have to react by putting on your favorite yes. Steve Miller song. Yeah. And that you would get tired of the Marshall Tucker songs. And when you put your quarter in, you'd still have to wait a dozen songs to get your Steve Miller song. So there was a great deal of frustration in jukeboxes. The, the useful takeaway from this is that we have been to most of these places before. And there are a variety of factors and incentives that, that affect the structure of a commercially considered record. But, you, you know, when, when we look through this article, this is great. Very detailed analysis of what percent of the listens come from what number of tracks. With pie charts, uh, no less. With with pie charts. When people when people bought albums on on CD, you didn't know how many times they listened to each track on, on the album. In, in much the same way as, as we didn't used to know which Rolling Stone articles got read. We just knew that people would, would buy Rolling Stone and, and you would try to write good articles so that people would like the magazine and, and keep buying it. But now that you know which articles in Rolling Stone people read, you have an incentive to create really shocking headlines regardless of the quality of the content. When you know which tracks on an album 
people actually listen to. You have an incentive to make people keep listening to the uh, to the track, at least for the first minute or whatever it is that that causes Spotify to trigger a, a royalty payment. I was going to ask you that question. How much time before the, that royalty payment clicks Good in? Question. I can't remember if it's 30 seconds or a minute. But it's not, it's not the full track, though. Yeah, they don't have to listen to the whole thing. Okay. Uh, it's interesting, though, how you raised the question of how a Rolling Stone article on its own is like a song to the album of an issue of Rolling Stone. It's a similar way. We're not reading this entire issue of Rolling Stone. We're just talking about a single article, ignoring all the rest in this issue, which may have even some useful album reviews. Yeah, but I, I mean, realistically, what we're doing here is is we are recording an entire podcast about how a, a mediocre deep cut album track is a really shitty mediocre deep cut album track that is pretending to be a single. <laughs> yep. The incentives and the environment in which, and the, the reward structure are complex and they are subtly different between an uh, article and a song. But, you know, I mean, we, can, we can keep going through this and talking about the ways in which it's shite. My favourite bit of shite is the uh, sentence, the music industry is facing a bit of an existential crisis. The author may mean existential crisis in the, in the sense of, of the, the Jean-Paul Sartre type of existentialism, existentialism and humanism. But having opened with, with talk of a, a massive decline in sales, 10% increase, you might think that the, the existential crisis here was, was a crisis that threatened its existence, which is literally not the case as revenues are increasing really quite dramatically. As the music industry has figured how to pull itself out of that slump that it was in. Absolutely. And, you know, if, if music industry revenues were falling by 10% a year, then we would be talking about the the threat of the music industry disappearing altogether. That's certainly what what people were saying. The beleaguered saying, music industry. The beleaguered music industry, yes. exactly. And so I, I think really uh, what we should be talking about, what we should be recording a podcast about, is that we should be expressing concern that at a growth rate of 10% a year, the music industry could monopolise all commerce on planet Earth within the foreseeable future and, and could could swallow us all if it maintains that growth rate since since that 10 percent is kind of like compound interest if it maintains that growth rate for 100 or 200 years it would indeed suck the economic air out of the rest of humanity absolutely and you know this becomes a, a terrible addiction where um it replaces housing as the housing and, and healthcare, like people won't be able to afford housing and healthcare because they will be obliged to pay so much money for streaming subscriptions. And I think we should raise a red flag about this now. Like, you know, the music industry is causing an existential crisis for all other industries by growing this fast. I mean, I'm, somebody should ask the question, is this rate of growth sustainable? Is it legal? Is, is it legal? Well, I, I'm not a lawyer. But I think not. Well, let's assume just... <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Look, I don't even know where look, to go from here. I, I, started, I started my career in, in the music industry 
right at the point where the CD boom kind of kind of peaked. You know, there's this famous graph, like all the different formats, and and then there's like this this decline. It just goes off a cliff. Right. This was this was when my like career. A ski slope. Yeah. This, exactly. This was this was when my career started. Um, I kind of stopped performing and started selling records. And for like my whole career, it's just been like, uh, it's going down. Oh, it went down again this year. Oh, it went down again this year. It went down again this year. And you'd look around and you'd be like, oh, some of us still have jobs. And, you know, you'd have meetings with the labels. And every time you went there, there'd be fewer people and the office would be smaller and it'd just be like lights off. And, and they'd move to a smaller floor and they'd move to a smaller building and they'd merge and they'd shut down. And, and, and people would be getting fired, and the, the coverage was always like the music industry's dying, the music industry's dying, the whole music industry's dying, it's being killed by this, it's being killed by that, it's technology, it's the internet, it's... And, and it would be a little bit hard to make the argument that it's all going to be okay, you know, that there's still going to be music, people are still going to consume music, this is part of a process, and it's cyclical, and, and it happens, and we should be sensible about this, and, you know, there's little comfort to the people who lost their jobs, but now, third consecutive year of growth, and we are still getting this shite about how our entire business is founded on sand, and it's not, it's not, all right, the sales are going up, the album is a completely artificial, invented concept, which is, it's not like, it's not like the symphony is dying. It's not like the, the concept of, of selling a bunch of songs together is being made illegal. It, it's not like you're not going to be allowed to do that anymore. It's, it's not like great album artists will be forbidden or prevented from, from making albums. It just means that people are no longer being suckered into buying eight shitty songs because what they wanted was two good ones. That, that's all this means. That is the only thing that this means. And this is not helpful at all. You know, I wonder if people are looking back to this period in the late 80s and early 90s, the heyday of the CD, when record companies made a ton of money. They sold a lot of CDs to people who were replacing their LP. It was durable. It sounded better. It was portable. And I think they're looking back longingly at this saying, how come we're not making the money that those guys were? I mean, th these guys were rock stars, <laughs> literally and figuratively. Um, you know, they led glamorous lives, these music guys. It's because all these people in record companies were able to afford so much cocaine for about 10 or 15 years from CDs, and now they have to pay for it out of their pocket. That's right. It was a, it was a very brief period where there was a lot of money to be made, and, and now we're back to normal. It was, it was an El Dorado artificially created by... All of us bought CD copies of the albums we loved best because they didn't scratch and they sounded better. Well, they didn't always sound better, but they didn't scratch. And they were overpriced because the CD companies, the record companies overpriced them and we fell for it. And now people are looking back and saying, why did we fall for that? And why did we spend so much money? And let's not forget there was there was nothing there were fewer other things to spend our money on then as well. There were fewer other ways of of identifying culturally with a, a, another group of people. There was no internet. There were no apps. We didn't have iPhones. The expensive thing you bought to put in your pocket was a, a Walkman or, or, or a Discman. And these are not the only ways in which we we identify socially anymore. These and, and renting a video was a huge commitment. You had to go to a store and look through a few hundred videos and try and decide which one you wanted to watch. Then you take it home and you'd have to rewind it because the last person didn't rewind it. Then you'd have to watch it and sit through the FBI warnings, and then you'd have to rewind it if you were civic-minded, and then take it back to the store. Yeah. Honestly, Kirk, rewinding your videotapes is, is socialism, and, and <laughs> the, 
the the market the market would resolve this issue if it were not crushed under the boot of government but this is ridiculous and the album as a creative outlet is not in deep trouble the album as a way of gouging teeny boppers and selling shitty songs is something to which we would all bid good riddance especially those teen pop artists who were forced to record a load of shitty songs that that they don't like um when they could just make more singles that are good spend more time on the singles and generate the revenue from the singles this is all fine but i'll tell you who is utterly fucked and that is publications like rolling stone who at the moment their business model depends upon this kind of outright uninformative distortion and which are laying off staff left right and center because they don't have a sustainable business model and who are who are depending increasingly on social media networks to share their content and give them a, a slice of people's attention when that attention is being much more easily grabbed by people who have far less accountability and who can easily either afford to lie more blatantly than this or like us don't really give a stuff and can afford to lose listeners or not really have any listeners because we've decided to tell the truth instead and i'm going to carry on uh, selling records and rolling stone is not going to carry on selling magazines that is what i have to say on the subject it's a load of shite thank you very much andy for your trenchant analysis and we hope to have you back soon to look at some more shite <laughs> excellent it's been bollocks All right, it is now time for us to present our next tracks. That's the music that we'll be listening to and liking or not liking, Kirk. I haven't really been listening to a lot of music lately. I've been listening to Bob Dylan and Shakuhachi music, and I've already talked about that enough. But I read a novel recently by Jonathan Coe called Middle England. This is the third of a sort of trilogy of novels that are around the same characters. The first is called The Rotters Club. The second is called Closed Circuit. And I read all of these in just a couple of weeks. The, the Middle England just came out. And at one point in Middle England, one of the characters and his sister are scattering the ashes of their parents on a hilltop. And the character, the male character, thinks of this piece by Ralph Vaughan Williams called The Lark Ascending, which is mentioned several times throughout these books. Now, I'm not familiar with this sort of British orchestral music, so I went to my trusty Apple Music and I looked up the Lark Ascending. And of course, the problem with Apple Music and classical music is you get a handful of versions, and trust me, the Lark Ascending has been recorded hundreds of times, and it's kind of hard to find out even who's playing on them. So I just picked one, and the one I'm going to pick here is on a compilation from Warner Classics, Sarah Chang is playing violin. The, the lark ascending is the violin riffs as it goes through. And I must say, if I wasn't listening to this because of the book, I would have turned it off because it was so boring. Now, we had a listener a while back who was a little bit irked that I said some things that he didn't like about Rachmaninoff. And it's probably someone else who's not going to like what I say about Ralph Vaughan Williams, but it's boring. And I was listening to this compilation, which was two and a half hours of Ralph Vaughan Williams, and I kind of wanted to give him a chance. And it has works like the Fantasia on a theme by Thomas Tallis, which is well known, and 
on Wenlock Edge, which maybe that's the village of Much Wenlock, which is somewhere between here and Shrewsbury, which I thought was a great name of a village. I would love to live in a village called Much Wenlock. But I found this music drab and boring and dull, and there is this British tradition of light music, and I'm not really sure what it is. I think it's like kind of the pops music in in the U.S., and I, I... what am I missing? Is Vaughan Williams' music just boring? I mean, there are some attractive violin riffs in this piece, but it just didn't work for me. So this is my anti-next track. Doug and I were talking, and I said, well, can I pick a next track that I didn't like? And he said, as long as there's something to say about it. So Ralph Vaughan Williams' The Locker Sending, I'll link to the Apple Music compilation album that I listened to. And if I'm totally wrong and I've totally missed Ralph Vaughan Williams, drop us a note and tell me why. Doug? I hope you have something interesting this week. Uh, Fingers crossed. Uh, Ian Dury is one of my favorite recording artists. He was popular in the late 70s and early 80s, probably most famous for the song Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. But he had a lot of other cool, funky little songs, and I've liked more or less his albums uh, that he put out. He passed away in 2000, but leaves a lot of music to listen to, and it does pop up in my playlist every so often. And my wife heard a couple of tracks and was kind of intrigued by his voice and and that sort of thing. And, and a few days later, she was listening to Radio France, where we always hear amazing things. And she said she thought she heard something by Ian Dury. And when she looked it up, it was by a guy named Baxter Dury. And I'm like, I, I, I don't know who that is. So I looked up Baxter Dury, and Baxter Dury is the son of Ian Dury. In fact, he's the five-year-old posing with Ian Dury on the cover of the new Boots and Panties album. Uh, Baxter didn't really start his singing career until later in life, and he's got four albums out. They've been put out with uh, with collaborations from people who have been involved in Portishead and Pulp and Arcade Fire. But it's uh, the music that he does is somewhat minimal. But the funny thing is, is he uses the same style that his dad used to sing, to do that sort of talking Cockney music hall uh, style of vocal. But it's the music underneath that, of course, is always more interesting, and it's very... Well, depending on what album you're listening to, it it can be different. Uh, the album I'm going to listen to by Baxter Dury is called Happy Soup. Seems to have a, a, a good representation of the of the kind of songs that he likes to do. They're sort of depressing songs, but they're usually done over a sort of a happy, funky, jazzy music bed, and um, it's it's still very interesting. And it it brings back memories of Ian Dury, which who was a lot more fun, I think. But Baxter Dury, I think, has something to say, too. And it, like I said, the, the music sounds quite good. So I'm going to give it a listen and, and maybe go back to some of his other albums, too. Baxter Dury, Happy Soup, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.